Hello, and welcome to Scry. I am the Seer, your host into the void of darkness and realm of the shadows. In this episode, I will gaze into the obsidian mirror and call forth four true tales of encounters with the other side. Before we begin, I would like to make note that in this episode, each segment will feature original music from Shadow Vibe. Check out his work on SoundCloud and follow him on Twitter. He's got some great music that fits our show well. But now, we need to get to our terrifying tales and spooky stories. In our first encounter of the episode, Longhunter09 tells of his experience living on an old Civil War battlefield and playing the part of a reenactor decades later. I grew up on a working beef cattle farm that was located in the middle of an often overlooked but significant Civil War battlefield. The farm has two early 20th century farmhouses at the east end of the farm, and my parents built a foremost home on the west end in the late 80s when I was two or three. When I was six, my parents finished the basement with two adjoining rooms for my twin brother and I. My twin brother and I hated it down there. We begged our parents to leave the connecting doorways open and positioned our beds so that we could see into each other's rooms. Until we moved out at 18, my brother would not stay down there alone. Now, before the inevitable pussy comments, keep in mind that we were farm kids who camped and coon hunted, often alone, in the hills and mountains around our home from about age 12. My brother never spoke of his fear much, but when pressed, would speak of hearing muffled voices in the walls. I had the same uneasiness, but never had any specific instances occur through most of my childhood. When I was in third grade, I was crippled with insomnia every single fucking night. I would lay in bed wide awake with a sense of uneasiness until dawn. I would fall asleep around 5 o'clock and would sleep until 6 o'clock when it was time to start chores. Several times the uneasiness turned to terror and my parents would find me curled up on the floor outside of their room in the morning. Needless to say, after several weeks, I was a wreck. My parents finally took me to a child psychologist who was likewise stumped. After a downright miserable several months, it passed. I instantly began sleeping through the night and once again became a normal eight-year-old boy. This next part is hard to put into words, but fuck it, here goes. I was about 15 at the time and was sound asleep one night. I was facing the wall when I instantly snapped awake. I'm talking hyper alert, wide awake. I rolled over and saw it in the connecting doorway to my brother's room. It was a human figure, which looked to be a bit over five feet tall. 
I don't know how I could tell, but I instantly knew it was female. It was wearing some form of cloak or cape that covered its head. Its head was down and was looking at the ground, so I could not make out a face. The figure was carrying a large wicker basket and was moving towards me. I had the distinct impression that it wanted me to either take something from the basket or wanted me to put something into it. Despite that, the terror that I felt was indescribable. It was only about five or six feet away when I mustered the courage to turn on the light switch, which was located immediately by my head. When I did, it was gone. Now for the fucked up part. With the light on, I could clearly see my brother in his room. He was sitting straight up in bed. I didn't see him sit up, but rather, I believe he'd been sitting up the entire time. He was staring at me with a dazed, vacant look on his face, and I said, Did you just fucking see that? And he didn't reply. He just laid back down and went to sleep. There was no more sleep for me that night, and the light stayed on. The next morning, I had already convinced myself that I was dreaming. I nonchalantly asked my brother if he remembered me waking him up last night. I was prepared with some bullshit excuse so he wouldn't give me shit about being a pussy. He told me that he never remembered waking up, and I let the issue drop. After several days of thinking about it, it was starting to get to me. I had to tell someone. So... I relayed the experience to my mom in detail. Her face went white, and she asked me on which night this had occurred. When I told her, she told me of a story my father, another very rational individual who had never discussed or professed an interest in the paranormal, told her of that same night. He told her that he had fallen asleep watching a ball game in the living room. He told her he was instantly wide awake sometime in the early morning and saw clearly two small figures in what he described as robes standing in the middle of the room. He stated that when he moved, the two figures ran behind the large curtains of the bay windows, one to each side. He said they seemed childlike, so he thought they were my younger sisters playing a joke on him. He got up and checked the curtains and found no one there. He stated that it was so vivid that he actually got up and checked on my sisters who were sound asleep. He kept this all to himself and like me, tried to rationalize it as a vivid dream. He finally broke down and like me, told my mom who was recognized by all of us as the spiritual head of the household. We used to joke that she was more Catholic than the Pope. There were a few smaller instances around this time, but nothing that couldn't be explained with a little effort and normal life resumed. A year later, I had taken a job with a Civil War reenactment settler named Sandy and spent the summer working in her tent at reenactments around the country. On my second trip with her, 
we went to an obscure event in Michigan. On the long ride up, she told me some supernatural experiences that she had throughout her long career working on and around Civil War battlefields. I was a very private individual, even then, but for some reason, I decided to tell her my story. She listened and said that when we got to Michigan, she had a close friend named Peggy who would love to hear my story. She described Peggy as a medium who did not advertise that fact to anybody but close friends. She wasn't the Miss Cleo type, but rather a normal individual who often unexpectedly saw things that others didn't. When I met Peggy, she asked me if the room where my father saw the girls was directly above my room. I had never thought about it, but I realized that it was. She said that through the bay windows of the living room, you could see a long wooden building in disrepair several hundred yards from the house, and described the building in great detail. Sure as shit, she was describing an old unused chicken house in that exact location. She said that something was found near the building years ago, and it had been lost again. She said that the item was connected to the spirits. I knew exactly what she was talking about. Throughout my childhood, my grandfather had told me of a Civil War saber that his father had unearthed in that spot while plowing in the 20s. I had always heard of the saber, but my grandfather, somewhat of a pack rat, had misplaced it years ago. I spent many childhood hours combing every inch of that house and attic, with my grandmother's blessing, and never found the sword. She said that the saber will be rediscovered soon. Sure as shit, several weeks after I returned from Michigan, my grandfather found the sword in a crawlspace of his house. Peggy said that she wished she could provide more clarification, but that I should be wary of the spirits. She told me not to take anything from the woman should I see her again. Thankfully, I never did. Peggy said that I should look in the chicken house and that I would find something of interest. Later that summer, I decided to do so and was stung by a yellow jacket as soon as I opened the door. Whatever was in there could wait till colder weather and I didn't tell a soul about it. Several months later, I stopped and announced by Sandy's shop. Sandy said that she had just spoken with Peggy who told her to tell me that one step inside the chicken house didn't count and that I'd have to go all the way in to find what I was looking for. She then laughed and pointed at a box she was unpacking. Written on the side was my name. Sure enough, the return address of the package was from Peggy's business in Ohio. This was the first time that I had visited Sandy at her shop in several weeks but Sandy said that Peggy had told her that I'd be stopping by to visit her when the package got there. Like I said, I'm a very rational individual. I have not had any other supernatural experiences, and to this day, I'm unsure of my feelings about this chain of event. And no, I've never mustered the courage to reinvestigate that chicken house.
Longhunter09 mentions that the entity that he first encountered either wanted something or wanted him to take something from the basket. I've heard countless times that you should never take something or give something to entities that try to convince you to do so. It has been said that this can create a link or an opening that can allow the entity to enter you. Sometimes work sends us out into the field. And when Jacobus Rex went on a house call for a special needs student, he would have an experience that would lead him to believe that his student wasn't entirely alone, if you catch my drift. Almost 10 years ago, I encountered a case of true possession. I was a teacher at the time, and I worked in a program that was designed to allow students that were not able to attend class to get credit for attending school. It was called a homebound program. I had many students with various diseases, as well as students that could not go to school because of violent behavior problems or criminal status. One of my students was a six-year-old female that was prevented from attending school because of violent episodes. During these episodes, she would babble, scream, and exhibit the strength of a strong adult male. It would require a number of adult teachers and aides to subdue her. She was able to throw a regular, full-size student desk across the room without trouble. She had an entire battery of doctors that worked with her to no effect at all. She had a very bad family environment at all levels. It should be noted that her family was involved in a voodoo cult. Until meeting with her a number of times, I had assumed that she had severe psychological problems. However, after a number of meetings, I began to think that she might be possessed. I also realized that she could read minds during her possessions. I decided to test my theory. So the next time that I went to her home, I was sitting behind her and thought to myself the following. If you are really possessed, then get up from your chair, go pick up the shoes in the corner. At that moment, she turned in her chair and stood up. She walked to the corner and picked up the shoes and then turned to me and smiled. She set the shoes back down and walked back to her chair and went back to work. I had a coworker that came to the same conclusion due to similar experiences. She terrorized and attacked everyone that worked with her except me and the one other coworker that came to the same conclusion as I did. She feared the two of us greatly and would writhe in pain sometimes just from being in our presence. The rest of the time, she would cower. I could get her to work, but only if she didn't have to look at me.
Demonic possession is a terrifying thing, and all the more so when it happens to a child, who we as a society tend to view in an innocent light. We can only pray that this child received the appropriate help that she needed. For our next tale, we look at an encounter shared by Alex's dad, in which he describes how sitting at home with a friend of his and meeting something or someone that they wished they wouldn't have. I have something that happened in my past that I've never told a soul. It happened with my best friend since diapers, and I'm guessing he told no one either. I know how when things happen that are unexplainable, people will ridicule you, and I don't deal well with that. Forgive me if I get too detailed. I'm a CPA and tend to get too analytical. My best friend and I grew up together spent the night with each other almost every night for eight years. Then we were roommates in college, roommates after college until I got married. He was the best man at my wedding and the godfather of my first child. After he finished med school and his residency, he was diagnosed with a rare brain tumor in May and dead in June at 32. A weird side note. He actually died on my son's second birthday. My son will be 12 next month. My wife and I also have a four-year-old daughter. My best friend Scott was born on her birthday. So when my two kids have their birthdays, it's inescapable remembering Scott. When we were in high school, Scott's summer job was working for a local vet. This vet's wife inherited an old antebellum mansion. He worked for this vet the summer during college semesters as well. This old house was huge and sat on around 600 acres, but had been very dormant and empty forever. They intended to remodel this house and move in. The house was so huge, they did it in stages. The land had some highly desirable trees, and they sold a lot of them. Between the sale of their previous home and the money made off those trees, they were updating this house in parts very nicely. Some of these trees they kept for themselves and had the cabinetry and a lot of trim work done with them. Scott and I kind of divided the three floors of the house in quadrants. Each floor had four quadrants. They had finished one quadrant of the bottom floor. One room off the bedroom was done up like a spa, sort of. A smallish indoor pool, jacuzzi, weights, treadmill, etc. This veterinarian and his wife were going on a two-week vacation and asked Scott to house-sit and watch their dogs. They take Scott out in the boonies for the first time to show him the house and where it is. One look at its state and where it's at, 
and he asks if I can stay with him. They were my family's vet, and they knew me too, so they said it was okay. The rumor was that there was a bloody Civil War battle and people died in the house. They were buried on the property, etc., etc. Usual trumped-up extras to boot. We really weren't too concerned with that stuff, to be honest. Out in the boonies, with only a quarter of the bottom floor being livable, was our main concern. The first night we were there, we explored the house before it got dark, since electricity wasn't throughout the entire house. The upper two floors were pretty creepy, even in the daylight. Really old toys and some old creepy dolls. There was one creepy doll at the foot of the stairs going up to the third floor. It was so old, but yet looked like a real dead baby laying there. Really weird looking, and my imagination started running wild. We made a quick trip up to the third floor and looked over a very small piece and made a beeline back to the livable portion. At the bottom of the stairs, we noticed the doll was gone. We didn't debate. We just ran faster. Scott and I were 18 or 19 at the time, so old enough to be adults, but young enough to get scared. We decided to leave and grab a burger. We pulled back in the drive coming back, and we both swore that we saw someone inside. We quasi-searched the bottom floor and found nothing. We decided to swim and hang in the jacuzzi spa area. This was back before cable was everywhere, and they also had satellite TV in there. Scott's sitting on the side of the pool, and I swim to the other end underwater. I come up, and I hear talking. He's talking to a woman who looks to be 40-ish, but dressed like mid-1800s. He tells me later he'd never seen her in his life, but he's talking to her like they've known each other all his life. I walk over, and she turns to me and says, I see you found my baby. I didn't say anything, but must have had a what-the-fuck look on my face. My baby at the bottom of the stairs. It took everything in me to make my throat make a noise and say, The doll? She looked at me, and with a deep, guttural, manly voice said, Don't fuck with me. You're the one I'm afraid of, not him. But I'm not that afraid of you. Things don't normally shake me, but I could have passed out from fear. I couldn't speak or run. Scott just sat there with an almost grin on his face. She said she knew us before we were born and knew how one of us would end. She said Scott would never marry or have kids. He would barely make it past 30 but my kids would be linked to him, and they'd never allow me to forget him. Other than being able to find a petite woman that could mimic that deep, demonic voice and me not know her, 
I honestly thought that he was pranking me for years afterwards. He vehemently denied that and really acted like he wanted to act like it didn't happen. I slept on a couch and he slept in their bed. The next morning, that doll was laying in the bed with him, wrapped up like a real baby. They were paying him to house sit and he was splitting the money with me. I went in to get him up so we could get breakfast somewhere and saw the doll. I still remember seeing the doll and freezing. I couldn't rustle him or say a word. I just stood there, trying to grunt until he awoke. When he woke and saw the doll, he freaked. He flipped over to his clothes and said, I'm out. You can stay and have all the money, but I'm out. I wasn't staying there by myself. We then heard the most demonic, awful laugh, and we were gone. We both left some clothes. I left a gym bag and another pair of shoes. I didn't want them back. I think the family called other family or friends to come get their dogs. Like I said, I kind of would think deep down, Scott was pranking me at times for years. He never married or had kids, and when he died suddenly at 32, it shook me. When he died on my son's birthday, and my daughter was born on his, I don't think it was a prank he played on me and kept it going for 13 to 14 years. On his deathbed, I struggled dealing with the obvious dying and wanting to ask him that question. I finally did, and he looked at me and said, I know I'm dying, and I'm not afraid. The only thing that scares me is dying and seeing her again. The vet and his wife finished the bottom floor and I heard it was beautiful. Their daughter wanted her room on the second floor. All I ever heard afterwards about it was shortly after starting on the second floor, they stopped. They bought a very nice house in town and sold the house and property. I have a mind like a steel trap and I don't forget anything, even small details. I live in a small suburb outside of Nashville. To this day, I couldn't tell you where that house is, or even the general direction of how to get there. That encounter is one of the most chilling that we have shared on the show so far, in my opinion. I would love to hear what exactly caused the owners of the place to move out. Perhaps they encountered the same being. And Alex dad, our condolences on Scott. He seemed like a great guy and a great friend. And as we come to the last tale of the episode, we're gonna take things into a lighter realm because after all, the love of a grandmother is a wonderful thing. And as DBrad197 would explain, his grandmother would make herself and her sense of humor felt hours after her passing.
my grandmother was a hell of a lady. She raised me a lot for my young life and always was there for me. Hell, she even had a couple trippy ghost stories of her own. She thinks the small homestead she grew up in was haunted, and we used to joke around about that stuff a lot. She had a cool sense of humor. As my grandma got up in her years, my mom and I agreed that we would never put her in any kind of home, assisted living or otherwise. My grandma was strongly against it. So when I was 25, and my grandma was around 93, I ended up having to sell my house and move back in with my mom to help take care of my grandma. She was physically healthy, but started a slow descent into dementia, so my mom needed some help to take care of her. One of the hard parts for me, besides watching grandma decline, was being in my late 20s and living with my mom. We haven't always got along very well. Plus, I had two German Shepherds that added to her two cats and two dogs. It was pretty close quarters in that house for almost three years. Grandma. The grandkids called her Busha. She started to have this strange fascination with the garage. She would stand in the pedestrian door and open and close the garage door for no reason. The problem with that is that the animals would run past her and out of the house. We could never get her to stop. It pissed my mom off badly, but I always thought it was kind of funny. My dogs and her had this great relationship too. They protected her like a baby, and she loved them for it. And they really appreciated the free rampages through the neighborhood. She spent her last three weeks in hospice, but to make her feel like she wasn't being abandoned, I slept in a chair by her bed every freaking night. Finally, one of my uncles convinced me to go home one night to sleep in a bed. I left at about midnight, got home, and went immediately to sleep. At one, both of my dogs who were sleeping on the bed with me started howling for no reason. They whimpered for about a minute, and I knew that Busha had passed. She was waiting for me to leave her so she could do it privately. Five minutes later, hospice called and said that she had just died. I drove with my mom to hospice to say one last goodbye. We got back home at about three o'clock. As we pulled up to the house, I started to move my arm to go for the garage door opener. Way before I even touched it, the garage started opening. I asked my mom if she did it, and she said, did what? Open the garage. No. I couldn't help but smile. Busha had to fuck with the garage door one last time. We would like to thank the authors of these stories for sharing them with the world and encourage all of our listeners to share their encounters with us at scrypod.com or shoot us an email at scrypodcast at gmail.com. It's a great way to share the scare.
You can also drop us a line at 573-203-8668. I would also like to once again thank Shadow Vibe for providing us with the music in each segment of this episode. Check them out at SoundCloud. And don't forget to check out the talented Iran Horrors at DeviantArt who created our logo. Both of these individuals have incredible talent. For our podcast recommendation to tide you over until our next episode, check out Fearscape and explore the unknown with Josh and Stefan. But now, we must end this seance of sound, this morbid mediumship, and close the gate. And as always, say goodbye. This is Scry.